0: Chapter 10, The Spirit and the Letter Many Christians today, most of whom were not raised in a Torah-observant household, are beginning to feel a restlessness, a stirring, caused by a predominantly New Testament understanding of who God is. Many are beginning to sense that something is missing. At the same time, these folks feel something awakening inside of them, Which has lain dormant for generations. For many, a new discovery is being made. Jehovah's commandments contain unfamiliar and exotic treasures to which Christianity, as a whole, has not been privy for an eon. Many Christians are beginning to look into the commandments not only to see what is limited and allowed, but more than ever, to see if those same commandments might disclose previously unimagined substance beauty and value because after all what we value is made known in our beliefs and what we believe is revealed only by what we do so it is with faith faith without works is dead said another way to claim belief or trust or loyalty to anything is futile it's useless until that belief, trust, or loyalty is authenticated through demonstration. Another of the lies that our fathers have inherited is that the Mosaic laws were temporary, burdensome, and incomplete, such that Jehovah always planned on eliminating them at the advent of Jesus. As if Jesus were Superman, who saved the day for all the Christians who otherwise would have had to do all that heavy lifting, all that burdensome command-keeping that Israel had to do. Christianity has been sold a misconstrued variant of Jehovah's commandments. As a result, we jettisoned the commandments, not only in practice, but much more so as the teacher that they were always intended to be. Paul very openly states this exact thing in Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25. The law was meant to teach us and lead us to Christ. Teach us what? Teach us what it means to be a son of God. But when the son of God appeared, we no longer needed the instruction from the tutor or guardian, as many translations have it but we now receive our instruction directly from the teacher himself. The law could not justify us as sons and daughters, but only teach us about righteousness. Jesus can and does justify us as sons and daughters through our trust, belief, and loyalty to him. Now we are under his instruction and must do what he requires. What does he require? That we obey God's commandments out of love. Paul explains that the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, that is, to Jesus. They were not made to anyone else. Therefore, if you and I want to inherit the promises made to Jesus, then you and I must be part of Jesus. Paul goes on to explain that when we are baptized into Jesus, we are henceforth declared to be sons and daughters of Abraham, a.k.a. justified in Christ through faith. That is Paul's argument in Galatians 3. The case he has made is about justification. The letter to the Galatians is a 5 chapter argument about what makes a person into a son of Abraham. Paul taught that it was first our faith in Jesus, then our baptism into Jesus, and finally our obedience to Jesus from then on. The unsettlers came in and blew up the whole church by teaching them that their sonship, their justification or inheritance in Christ came through circumcision, not through baptism. Paul promptly and decisively demolishes their false teaching. That, my friends, is the letter to the Galatians. It has nothing to do with whether or not one should obey God's commandments, but everything to do with not obeying his commandments, in order to become a son of Abraham. I believe! I believe! I already believe in Jesus, one might say. So what? Big deal. Whoop-de-doo! I am paraphrasing James in chapter 2, verse 19. Even the demons believe that God is one. What difference is there between your belief and the demon's belief? Nothing, if there is no demonstration, action, or obedience behind the claim. We put our faith, trust, and loyalty in Jesus. But that is not done by saying it or really feeling it. It is done by obeying his commands. Again, faith without works is dead. We show our faith in Jesus by doing what Jesus said to do. If you love me, keep my commandments. And his commandments are not his own, but they belong to the Father who sent him. To keep Jesus' commands is to keep Jehovah's commands. You cannot escape it, no matter what, if we claim to know Jesus and do not do what he said We are liars, and the truth is not in us. Remember, there are five principal areas in the New Testament that record very clearly everything that Jesus said for his disciples to do. This corpus of teachings can be found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation. I have yet to meet anyone that can make a coherent argument Showing how Jesus' teachings abolished any part of the law of Moses, how did we miss paul's rebuke of the Corinthians concerning how some had taken paul's teachings and set them against christ's first corinthians one ten through seventeen How many times have we heard in our very churches a teaching on how, in Paul's letters, the law of Moses has been overturned. How are we not guilty of doing the exact same thing that some of those Corinthians were doing? Expanding Horizons Christianity has peered almost exclusively into the writings of the New Testament in order to gain the understanding of who God is and what is his will. Yet no author of any book or letter in the New Testament ever looked into the writings of the New Testament in order to come to know Jehovah or ascertain what his will is. The gospel accounts are the evidence that Jesus is who the Old Testament predicted that he would be. You see, the registry containing the requirements to the position of Messiah is the Old Testament, not the New. My dear friends, we've been looking in the wrong place. We need to begin looking in the same place that Peter, Paul, John, Matthew, James, Luke, and Mark all looked to find out who God is, what his eternal will is, and what Jesus would be like. Moreover, if we want to truly know the God of all creation, we had better heed John's words. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. John, Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, Joshua, Moses, the prophets of old, and most of all, Yehovah, all seem to think that the commandments are about love. How did we Christians miss this? Mother Nature? I don't think so. Consider the following. If a man or woman never read, heard, or lived in a context where one single word of the Bible were on display, what would he or she think of the God who created the world? Or, asked another way, what conclusion would be drawn by someone who only looked to nature for a revelation of who the creator is. Let's see. Sunsets are beautiful. Rain gives life and turns things green. The sun brings warmth, growth, and light to the whole world. So far, so good. This creator is beautiful, life-giving, a bringer of warmth, light, and he prizes growth. And flourishing, all of that is 100% true. Flowers are colorful. Birds sing melodious songs. Lions rip the throats out of gazelles in a blood-spurting, sanguineous shower of death. Lightning strikes trees, houses, and people, causing ravenous fires and instant extermination. This world we live in, the nature that surrounds us, reveals something very odd creation is both cruel and tender unforgiving and kind overrun by disease death and destruction while simultaneously full of beauty goodness and seamless functionality the question is what kind of god is revealed by nature Is the God revealed by nature an accurate depiction of the God revealed in the scriptures? Does a snake have knees? Richard Dawkins, renowned atheist, described nature in the following way in his book River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. Nature is not cruel, only pitilessly indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. I disagree with Dawkins on only one point in his description of nature. He claims nature lacks all purpose. You see, Richard Dawkins has no choice but to claim that nature lacks all purpose because he rejects the existence of God. If there is no God, there can be no design in nature. And if there is no design in nature, there can be no purpose in nature. Dawkins, through his observation of nature, has actually described it quite fairly. The problem is that Dr. Dawkins... Personifies nature with adjectives like pitiless, callous, and indifferent. It's almost as if he looks to the laws of nature alone for an answer to the question of what kind of God does nature reveal? Nature is indifferent and pitiless to all suffering. For when was the last time that a coyote heard the cry of a dying rabbit? and felt moved to help the bleeding creature into shelter and attend to his wounds. Nature is neither good nor evil. When was the last time that one dog felt really bad about eating another dog's food and subsequently compensated the hungry dog for his unjust act? Or when was the last time that all the cats in the neighborhood held a kitty court and find a tomcat for impregnating all the females without their feline consent. You see, animals rape, yet animals are not held accountable for their actions by a higher authority. Nature is neither cruel nor kind. Animals kill. Mudslides kill. Floods kill. Disease and famine kill. Yet Who is held responsible for all the death? No one. Because nature is not a person. It simply is a certain way, whether we like it or not. Nature lacks all purpose. Here, Dr. Dawkins and I disagree sharply. A simple examination of the human body alone reveals far too many purposefully designed attributes to conclude a lack of design ergo, purpose. But if nature did lack purpose, and nature does reveal a pitiless, indifferent, amoral, callousness, according to human judgment, then what would that say about the God responsible for nature? Houston, we have a problem. Something is terribly wrong. Two plus two is not adding up to four here, folks. The scriptures do not reveal a pitiless, indifferent, amoral, and callous God, but nature certainly does. So what are we to conclude? If we look to nature alone to discover what the creator of heaven and earth is like, we will come away with an indubitably warped portrait of who God is. But in a similar fashion, If we look merely to the New Testament writings in order to find out what the creator of heaven and earth is like, once again, our profile will be distorted and incomplete. You see, both Richard Dawkins and Christianity correctly look to laws in order to find out what the lawgiver is like. Dawkins looks solely to the laws of nature which betray a cruel, unjust, pitiless, and indifferent lawgiver. Unfortunately, he's only getting half the story, and the half he's getting is what the enemy of God, the devil, has done to God's perfect creation. However, when Christianity looks solely to the laws found in the New Testament, or better said, the interpretation and application of the laws in the New Testament, they betray a very different lawgiver than the one found in the Old Testament. Christianity, likewise, has only got half of the story. Yes, absolutely, sort of, kind of. If Jesus allegedly did away with the Mosaic law by nailing it to the cross, then... What does that say about the law and the lawgiver in the first place? It's duration, it's quality, or his capacity to do what he set out to do. In the foreword of this book, I wrote that I am pointing a finger at Christianity, calling her out on cherry picking. Here's what I mean. If Jesus nailed the entire law of Moses to the cross, with the exception of the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, and the second greatest commandment, Leviticus nineteen eighteen, and if he did not nail all of the ten commandments to the cross, just the fourth commandment, and if he did not nail the law of Moses concerning marriage, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, Bestiality, drunkenness, orgies, greed, gossip, slander, God hating, faithlessness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness to the cross, then which laws of Moses did he do away with by nailing them to the cross? Did he just nail the kosher food laws to the cross? Did he nail the observance of Jehovah's feasts to the cross? Did he nail the letter of the law of Moses to the cross? all the while keeping the spirit of the law of Moses alive and well. Ideas have consequences. Thomas Aquinas was a smart and influential theologian that lived and wrote in the 13th century. Mr. Aquinas introduced something into Christian theology that has proven to be cancerous to Jehovah's Gentile, God-fearing assemblies. Aquinas introduced the idea that biblical law consisted of three distinct types, moral, judicial, and ceremonial. Moral laws, he claimed, remain through the ages and apply to everyone, since they are part of the law of nature, referring to good morals. The other two types of laws are ceremonial and judicial. These, he claimed, were temporary, since they came into existence only with the law of Moses. Aquinas' own words state, For they, the ceremonial laws, were ordained to the divine worship for that particular time, and to the foreshadowing of Christ. We know this to be false for a number of reasons. Firstly, God does not change. Therefore, if laws were ordained to the divine worship for one particular time and not another, then Aquinas is confessing that God has changed and will change again, something that Yehovah can never do. Secondly, all laws are moral laws because every single law that has ever existed is by definition the morality of the one who legislated that law. Therefore, to designate one commandment as moral and teach that it is permanent, while designating another commandment as judicial and in turn has ceased to bind, his words, not mine, is not a license that Jehovah ever gave to Mr. Aquinas. Thirdly, Yehovah never, divorces one type of law from another. On the contrary, he consistently refers to all of his laws as his Torah and considers them so utterly unified that should any one of his laws be broken, regardless of how mankind may categorize them, a curse be upon the breaker. Deuteronomy 27, 26 Jesus agrees. Therefore, whoever relaxes or unbinds one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least amongst the kingdom of heaven. Mr. Aquinas confused the ability to categorize laws with the ability to separate them. He is not the first to commit this fallacy, nor will he be the last. We have already seen how this error has been perpetuated in modern times with the notion of sacred and secular activities discussed in chapter 8 of this book. But the reality is that there can exist nothing secular in a realm created by a God who fills all in all. In biblical times, this error can be seen as well. James addressed it in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, when he reminded his readers that although faith can be named apart from works, the two remain inseparable, as inseparable as a body from its spirit. Once the body is detached from the spirit, it is dead. I would argue that once the letter of the law or physical act is disunited from the spirit or morality of a law, the physical act is also dead. Is this not what Hosea said in chapter 6, verse 6? For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is precisely what the Pharisees had done to the law of Moses in Jesus' day. They had performed surgery on his laws with the goal of mass spiritectomies. This would allow a law to be kept technically without accountability to the moral intent, which is inextricably bound up in the law itself. It is impossible to keep the morality of a law without keeping the intended action of said law. The actions may be expressed differently depending upon the context, but the spirit cannot be removed from the letter. This is because they form what Hebrew calls an echad, a unit. Faith is an echad. Laws are an echad, humans are an echad, and God is an echad. All of them have a part and a counterpart that cannot and will not stand alone and remain unchanged. Laws, it turns out, are a lot like humans. Every human has a non-physical spirit, and every human has a physical body. Together, the two are indivisibly interwoven to make a human nefesh, you say in Hebrew, or soul. Likewise, every law contains two elements, a spirit and a letter. Said another way, every law has both a non-physical aspect and a physical one. The spirit of a law is the intent and purpose of the lawgiver. His motive, you might say. The letter of the law is its execution, its act, its performance. No court can legislate agreement with or affirmation of motive or intention. In other words, no human court of law can obligate me or you to keep the spirit of any law. I cannot be penalized for not affirming a law's purpose. I cannot be charged for disagreeing with a law's intention. I cannot incur guilt for carrying out a law even if my intention was to do otherwise. Every single law in existence is the legislation of somebody's morality. That means that every law begins with the non-physical, but must be expressed physically through execution or doing some action. Although you may have never been pulled over by a state trooper and ticketed for not liking the speed limit that you were obeying, the spirit of the law still matters in a court of law. This is especially true when one breaks the law, The spirit of the law is always taken into consideration. What was the breaker's intent? What was her motive? Did he do it on purpose? Did she intend to cause harm or was it accidental? This is the reason that taking someone's life is separated into categories like manslaughter, first degree murder, second degree murder, and so on. If the spirit of the law matters in human courts, how much more does it matter in a heavenly court? Jehovah indeed cares where your heart is when the subject of law keeping is on the table. God the Father knows that strict obedience to a body of laws is dead, hollow, sterile, and of no avail if there is no faith driving the execution of said laws. Now that we've seen how each and every law, whether human or divine, contains both a spirit and a letter, let's look at a handful of Jehovah's laws in the Torah that they might teach us more about our divine lawgiver. Put on your spelunking hat and grab your pickaxe because the twenty second chapter of Deuteronomy is a veritable gold mine of riches and wealth, a treasure trove into the heart and soul of Jehovah. The Least of the Commands Deuteronomy twenty two six and seven. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young, or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. Many a sage of old considered this commandment to be the least of all the commandments in the Torah. Why? Because it's about birds, nests, and eggs. Laws like this one don't often come across the benches of the Supreme Court. Let's examine, firstly, the letter of this law. What does it say, and how should one carry out this law? Happenstance is the framework. If you happen to come across a bird's nest in a tree, or on the ground, and see mama bird sitting on her hatchlings or eggs, what should you do? Jehovah commands that you not take the mother with the young, but let her go. There might be some arm flapping and squawking needed on your part, but after she flies away, you may purloin her shelled offspring for a breakfast burrito later on. Fairly simple and straightforward. That is the letter of this law. That is how one is supposed to keep this law. But what is the spirit of this law? Or said another way, what is the lawgiver's intent or purpose with this law? That is the question that will allow us to descend into the far reaches of God's mind. You're getting warmer. Warmer! At the end of the commandment on how to behave around birds and nests there is an embedded clue just waiting to be dislodged and beheld. I want to let you in on a little secret. Whenever I want to see if a sentence, phrase, or word in the New Testament is connected to one in the Old, I use the King James Version. The KJV tends to keep continuity in translations between the two Testaments. On your favorite online website, like BibleGateway.com, for example. If one types in the words, Thy days may be long, from this command concerning our feathered friends, only one other passage appears. Exodus 20 and verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which Yehovah thy God giveth thee. Now isn't that something? The first occurrence of the words, thy days may be long, is found inside of a commandment to honor father and mother. What is it that one is supposed to shoo away from the nest again? Ah, yes, a mother. Now we have unlocked a previously unknown truth about our beloved God and father. He wants us to honor all fathers and mothers, not just the ones who can send us to our rooms without supper. Jehovah, it would appear, has a soft spot in his heart for moms. He cares for mothers deeply, even when those mothers have feathers, fur, or even fins. His commandments come with consequences, always. However, in this case, the consequences are positive. He wants us to honor father and mother, regardless of kind, so that we may have long life. The consequence for honoring parents is long life. It is also the same consequence for honoring bird mothers found in what was considered be the least of all the commandments in the torah so if yehovah places the same positive consequence for honoring a human mother found in the ten commandments as he does when honoring a bird mother found in deuteronomy 22 then what does that tell you about the assessment of greatest and least that man may assign to Jehovah's commandments. Maybe what we consider to be not all that important is actually very important to our lawgiver. Jehovah seems to really care for mothers. But here's the amazing thing. He doesn't just care for human mothers or even for mothers of an avian kind. He cares for all kinds of mothers for three different times in the Torah he warns his people not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk now i wonder why that is is it just to deter his people from practicing the same rituals as the pagan nations surrounding them maybe is it just because jehovah thought goat meat boiled in goat milk isn't very holy maybe? Or is it that Jehovah does not want to subject even a mother goat to seeing her baby being slaughtered and dropped piece by piece into a pot full of the same milk that she freely gave to feed the very people who have charge of feeding her? Jehovah loves His creation, all of his creation, not just the ones with hands and feet, hairstyles, and fancy clothing. Do you remember how the book of Jonah ends? Jehovah asks Jonah a rhetorical question that must have boggled Jonah's mind. Remember, the context is that Jonah is so angry with Jehovah's compassion on Israel's number one nemesis, the Assyrians, that he begs God to end his life. Jonah would rather be dead than to go on living, knowing that the Ninevites were safe and sound. Jehovah responds to Jonah like this, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals Jonah 4:11 Jehovah pities animals nature pities no one you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4 if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him exodus twenty three four and five Jehovah loves animals, feeds and cares for animals and he fully expects us to do the same he does not want them to suffer unjustly even down to the most insignificant bird mothers mean the world to our heavenly father even amongst the animals he loves them so much that they're going to be around in the next age for he says of the world to come The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea isaiah eleven six through nine since Deuteronomy 22, 6-7 was so good and so enlightening. Let's look at one more commandment from the same chapter, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. The letter of the law states that a parapet, or protective fence, shall be put around the roof so that no one falls off the roof accidentally and suffers damage. That this law is practical, there can be no doubt. It does not seem to be all that difficult to follow. What may have been difficult for the adherence to this law was the extra cost of materials and labor to erect such a safeguarding enclosure. Think about who would be most prone to falling off of a large, flat roof, where an entire family could eat, play, and even run around catching a cool evening breeze after enduring an arid day on the sweltering sand. Who was at risk? Kids, older folks, distracted persons, to name a few. Anyone could conceivably fall from a roof given just the wrong circumstance. Yahovah said, Put up a fence because otherwise, if someone does fall from your roof and it lacks the parapet that I told you to build, I'm holding you accountable for the injury or death of the one who fell. Yikes! What does the letter of this law reveal? It reveals that safeties and preventative measures are not only sanctioned, but mandatory. For all new dwellings. Pretty straightforward. What does the spirit of this law manifest about our lofty legislator? He seems to value life. He seems to believe that safety is paramount. He may even highly regard forethought. The spirit of this law also tells us something more about our God. It tells us that he is just and will most certainly hold the breaker of this law liable to damages, even unto death. That means that he cares deeply for those who suffer injury or damage as a result of another's negligence. He doesn't just care for the hurt child, but for anyone who is harmed from a preventable situation. Let's go one more level down. For this one, We'll need our night vision goggles and some rope, because we're going deep. Double Entendre When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. Like Tomb Raiders accessing a centuries-old vault, we begin to peer into Jehovah's long-lost chambers of wealth that are His eternal commandments. As we set out on our explorations of God's will, we need to be ever mindful of both aspects of every law. There is the execution or performance called the letter of the law, and there is the purpose, intent, of every command called the spirit of the law. In the commandment above, first, we need to ask, what is a house? It's a building where people live. True enough. But what did Joshua think a house was in the following sentence out of Joshua twenty four fifteen, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. Joshua is not talking about a building. Instead, he's talking about a group of relatives the house of David, the house of Judah, the house of Levi, etc. These are not buildings, these are families. What is a parapet? Oh, it's a barrier, a fence. Not the most common of words, but we now have a definition. What is a roof in the Bible? Gee whiz, I thought it was the thing that sits on top of your house. Let me take you to a verse that I hope will trigger an aha moment for you. Matthew chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. But the centurion replied, Lord... I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, in both ancient and modern times a roof is authority that's right surely you remember the classic announcement broadcast by all parents to their children as long as you live under my roof you will obey my rules so what can a roof be figuratively a roof can be and is authority all the king's horses and all the king's men. All right, let's put the pieces back together again. Jehovah, in the spirit of his very literal law, has the most glorious treasure just sitting there waiting to be discovered. Let's look at the figurative but very spiritual aspect of this very literal law. When you build A new house, as in a new family. Jehovah wants a parapet, a fence, a protective enclosure to be placed around your roof. Stop. What is a roof again? A roof is authority. What, then, would you call the authority that was placed over the people of Israel? I'd call that the Torah. And what did Yehovah say to do around that Torah? He said to put up barriers, protections, and preventative measures. Think about it this way. Were you allowed to play in the street when you were a small child? No. How about the gutter? No. How about the sidewalk? Not really. Where were you allowed to play? In the yard. Where was the danger? The danger was three to four feet into the street. But what does every good parent do? We protect our kids from crossing into danger by keeping them far from the danger in the first place. Imagine the following impractical imperative. Susie, do not play in the lava that's headed straight toward our house, sweetheart. That's ridiculous. Susie's mother or father tells her to not play in the field that's at the foothills of the mountain whose top is boiling over with molten lava. They don't simply forbid Susie from playing in the lava. Her parents keep her as far from the danger of that lava as humanly possible. When you start a new family, I want you to teach your kids to not cross my boundaries, that is, break my Torah. You will do this by teaching them not to get as close to danger as they can while still being technically innocent. Teach them to distance themselves from breaking my laws. Because when your kids fall from my Torah, which is your authority, and I see that you never put any fences in their lives. I'm holding you responsible, mom and dad. I get goosebumps every single time I read this law out of Deuteronomy 22. Yehovah has very literal laws that he expects his people to carry out. We've been told that we no longer have to keep his laws because Jesus abolished them on the cross. But tragically, when we stop looking to his laws to teach us who he is, we forfeit the most splendid and stunning gifts that afford us glimpses into Yehovah's heart and soul. In one commandment, he covered both physical and spiritual safety, protection, life, and justice. Our God's love is so exquisite that I do not have language adequate enough to fully capture it. Blessed are you, O Yehovah our God, King of the ages, for returning sight to the blind and for setting the captives free. When we gaze into his laws, and all we see are a list of do's and do nots, we have missed the love that flows from those laws. Laws are about love. Love toward the law keepers, and love toward the law giver. I seriously disliked the punishment that I received as a boy When my mother spanked me, it hurt a lot, and I cried a lot. But when I wasn't much older than 12 or 13 years, I realized that had my mom not disciplined me for breaking her laws, I would have turned out much differently than I had, and not for the better. Now, as a father of grown children, I have heard from both of them the very thing that I feared I would never hear them say. Thank you, Dad, for disciplining me when I did wrong. I am grateful for the stripes I received so that I could become the man or woman that Yehovah is calling me to be. Okay, maybe they didn't say it like that, but you get the idea. My kids are grateful for the rules we had and the punishment they received when they broke them. The Hebrew writer says it this way, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I cannot convince anyone that Jehovah's laws were and always will be good. That is not my job. My job is to present you, the reader, with the truth. The Spirit will convict or not. My prayer is that I would seek the discipline of my God so that I might not be found to be illegitimate, but rather a true son. Jesus makes me so. His commandments train me in righteousness for my good. If I say that I know him, but do not keep his commandments, I am a liar and the truth is not in me. But if I keep his word, truly the love of God is perfected in me.